The Guardian. It's a new year, but an old theme tune. Welcome to the first media talk of 2012. Coming up this week, former News of the World editor Colin Myler heads back to the Big Apple. We discuss his appointment as the editor of the New York Daily News. Also in the podcast, Myler's former boss, Rupert Murdoch, becomes a member of the Twitterati. We investigate the dirty diggers' renewed interest in the internet. Plus... I see no witnesses, I suppose. No, but... Never are. The mysterious case of Sherlock and the pre-Watershed nudity on BBC One. And... I had a sneaky suspicion that Harry would always be good, but I didn't realise how good, and he has surprised me. You make ballroom dancing look cool, and that was exquisite. Alicia Dixon foxtrots her way off Strictly and heads over to Simon Cowell on Britain's Got Talent. Good move. I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, here we are, back again. And yes, we've bowed to the immense public pressure and reverted to our old theme tune. Well, if the BBC can do a U-turn over six music, then so can we. I, for one, will miss the 80s tinged synth. But hey-ho, life goes on. Which, and how's this for a segue? It certainly has for a certain Colin Myler. The former editor of the News of the World has been back in the headlines this week, and this time for all the right reasons. He's heading back to New York to become editor-in-chief at the New York Daily News, going head-to-head with the New York Post, owned by a certain Rupert Murdoch. Myler previously spent five years at the Post before being brought back to London to steady the ship at the News of the Screws in 2007. It turned out, of course, that rather than steadying the ship, he was only able to rearrange the deck chairs. Now, The Guardian's head of media and technology, Dan Sabber, is here with me in the studio. Dan, Myler's set to do battle with his old employers, Rupert and James. It's fair to say there's no shortage of bad blood between them. I think Colin Myler's going to be pretty motivated, having seen his News of the World closed by the Murdochs. Uh, he's going to be pretty motivated as he goes over to uh, the New York Daily News, which is the arch rival to Murdoch's Post in New York, and uh, see what he can do. But wow, I mean, you know, what a, what a turnaround! Uh, you know, the News of the World has been through been through the wars, of course, closed. Myler, Colin Myler, being the last editor, uh, and here he is, sort of, you know, bouncing back with in, in incredible speed. Mort Zuckerman, the New York property mogul who owns the News, was talking to Myler as far back as October when was the news of the world closed in July now let's be clear all this allegation of phone hacking date back to uh, editorships before Myler's but there was the whole there's the endless question about you know what happened since and what were the circumstances around the Gordon Taylor settlement and Myler's editorship was not short of controversies uh, Max Mosley Kate McCann's diary so you know there was a pretty lively period for the news of the world and you know he falls out of a job but whopping and and we know within months he's sort of being you know solicited and brought in by another newspaper owner so you know very very interesting i mean it seems that um you know the only way is up for him and uh, his his editorship of uh, news of the world was not his only controversial time in charge the last time he went to new york it followed his resignation from the sunday mirror over an article which caused the collapse of a high profile trial involving uh, lee bowyer and jonathan woodgate and landed the paper with a seventy five thousand pound fine so he's nothing if not the comeback kid he, he he certainly is i think what you also touched on there was that clearly look colin myler knows knows new york he was uh, uh, if you like he was scooped up by rupert murdoch a decade ago uh, and and brought in a sort of an I think one of these sort of executive editor roles, sort of senior uh, role at the New York Post. Clearly, when the moment ca- you know when the moment came, when Andy Colson resigned, he was appointed at the News of the World very, very quickly by Rupert. So he knows New York. He's been around a long time. Uh, he was also editor of the Mirror briefly in the in the nineties when they went through a sort of a, a few a few folks before Piers Morgan arrived. So look, he's certainly got the experience, and he's certainly got the the I don't know, the battle scars. <laughs> what, would you, what seems surprising? 
surprising to me, though, is the sort of the, the gene pool of sort of potential editors seems terribly restricted, doesn't it? Back to phone hacking. The Levison Inquiry is back next week after a break over Christmas and New Year. Who's going to be giving evidence? Who's not going to be giving evidence, I think? Uh, everyone and anyone is giving uh, evidence from Fleet Street. Well, everyone and anyone apart from Paul Taker is giving evidence uh, uh, over the next sort of couple of weeks. Uh, uh, every editor uh, is, is, is going through, appearing before Leveson. Look, we've got Dominic Moen on Monday, uh, rep- representing the Sun, of course, uh, with Kelvin McKenzie. I'm sure he won't thank having one of his predecessors on the same day as him. Uh, uh, that's going to be a, that's clearly going to be a very interesting day. And then we've got uh, Lionel Barber of the FT, Tony Gallagher of the Telegraph, Chris Blackhurst of the Indy on Tuesday, and then interestingly, Will Lewis now at News International. But speaking what on behalf of the Telegraph, I don't know. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, Paul Dacre's on holiday. He might be able to write about the Lawrence Inquiry, but he's not got time to break off his trip to some talk to Leveson on, on the Wednesday but Peter Wright at the Mail on Sunday's there and then we've got Richard Desmond no doubt with the cigar safely stubbed out on Thursday and Express Editors past and present and there'll be more the week after uh, 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 you know the Mirror the Times and of course Dear Old Guardian so this is going to be a, a really interesting period the question is though as these sort of galaxy names come in and come out first time some of these editors have ever given interviews or sort of really been tested out in public you know the question is really well, will Leveson be able to get under the you know or the inquiry be able to get under sort of the skin of the issues you know there's been a sometimes when Leveson's been so broad it hasn't really got into anything it hasn't really known what to focus on and I think you know these guys need a bit of challenge you know the other question of course is whether the inquiry has really got enough material to sort of test them all out but it promises to be a very interesting week as you mentioned, Dacre's not going to be there. He's going to be on holiday. But uh, you can see him in an extraordinary video interview on the Daily Mail website at the moment in which he talks about the role of the paper and the conviction of the murderers of Stephen Lawrence. Uh, how important was the Daily Mail in that, going back to that famous front page back in uh, 1997, I think, was it? I think it was uh, extremely important and there was a very interesting... And Paul Dacre also wrote a very interesting sort of... A very interesting sort of spread piece from him talking about that Jacques front page where he sort of talks about the uh, the then five... Uh, Lawrence suspects and I think you know he says if murder uh, murderers and if they are innocent or let them sue us or some such and it it was an important moment it was an important moment in the sense it really put the story back into the sort of public spotlight it was a bravura piece of journalism because it said okay look we know we're you know, we're taking a risk with the law here. We are even flouting the law, but we are saying, take us on if you think you're hard enough because we think we're right or we think we have right on our side. That not just chimed in with public opinion, I think it helped move and shape public opinion in favour of the, decisively in favour of the Lawrence family. And I think it was an important point for the moment for the male too. It just sort of said, right, middle, you know, we represent Middle Britain and we're, we're, we're saying what we think. And. And they've stuck to their guns for a long time. And I think people who like to criticise the Daily Mail as simply being uh, some sort of, you know, right-wing, small-c conservative paper, I think don't understand what a sort of complex and sort of complex and powerful and campaigning newspaper it can be at times. All right, Dan Sabat, thank you very much. There's more on Myler, Dacre and all things Leveson, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. Now, one of the many things that came to light as the phone hacking scandal unraveled were the inappropriate links between the Met and News International. Well, this week, Dame Elizabeth Filkin published her report looking more broadly at the relationship between the police and the press. 
Duncan Campbell is The Guardian's former crime correspondent and a former chairman of the Crime Reporters Association. I spoke to him a little earlier to find out more. Dame Elizabeth came to the conclusion that there were a lot of problems and, and they had to be addressed. And as a result of that, she pointed out some areas where it was felt that the relationships were unhealthy and uh, where they could be changed. And she's come up with a, quite a raft of recommendations which were pretty much immediately accepted by the by the police in the shape of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Brendan Hogan-Howe. One of those recommendations were that there should be much tighter controls on how the Met deals with journalists, and they said that all police contact with the media should be written down and uh, should be formalised. In fact, as you mentioned there, Bernard Hogan-Howe said that there should be no more secret conversations between between journalists and, and the police. But is, is that realistic? I mean, informal contact between journalists and people in authority is, is part of everyday journalistic practice, whether it's police, MPs, or, or, or any other part of the journalistic world, surely? Well, that, that's certainly very much what I feel, and I think it would be extremely difficult for uh, crime reporters to, to do their job. And also, I think very restrictive of, um, for police officers if, if it's interpreted quite as um, strictly as, as seems to be suggested. Um, I mean, one of the ways of getting background on a particular case is, is having an informal conversation with an officer. And the rules are, are already quite strict. It is illegal to buy information from the police. It is illegal for the police to sell that information. It is illegal for the police to interfere uh, to derail an inquiry by giving out information. They're all extremely aware of that, but those kind of circumstances are actually pretty rare. I mean, there certainly have been, and we will probably find some of them ending up in court, there certainly have been some relationships where money has changed hands. But that's always been against the law and in an enormous organisation like the Met and enormous organisations like the media there are always going to be people who bend the rules and who take bribes or offer bribes or, or whatever. A lot of what is said in the report is absolutely common sense and acceptable, and, and um, I think she's she's done a good job in, in, in pointing out many of the deficiencies. But what I think is the most worrying side of it is that it may be used by the police now as an excuse not to engage with the media rather than the other way around. She's saying she seeks greater transparency, but I think the reality is that a lot of officers will feel, ooh, Silk and Report, we were told we shouldn't be seen having a drink with you, we shouldn't be having breakfast with you or, or whatever, um, and we'll use that to, to say, sorry, we can't help you with the kind of nitty-gritty that often explains complex cases. And a consequence of that is less transparency rather than more. I think that that's the danger. Um, as I say, I, I was talking to a couple of, um, one former officer and one serving officer about it a couple of weeks ago, and they were nervous that it, it would mean that, that, you know, having a perfectly innocent lunch like that would no longer be acceptable. And I think that that would be damaging both for the for the public in terms of finding out what's going on and for the, for the police because it often the police can explain this is why we were doing that um, you know here are the reasons why we haven't made this arrest and it helps people to understand um, so and I I think that that is the danger we'll see we'll see what's happened we'll, we will see what happens but 
that's my fear as, as to what may happen. And finally, what about this list of um, 10 tactics used by the media, which is included in the report as sort of a, uh, a warning sign almost to police officers, which, uh, which warns them against the, off- the dangers of um, alcohol, one too many bottles of wine at lunch and late night dinners with flirtatious hacks. Yes. Patronising, verging on the comic, wasn't it? Well, it's kind of a bit out of date. I mean, there certainly was a time, um, 70s and 80s, when the amount of drinking done by journalists with police officers was uh, of industrial quantities. Um, And both the culture in the newspaper world and in the police has changed a lot. Partly, both of them are much less macho than they were 20 or 30 years ago, and, and therefore there's much less of that kind of heavy drinking and so on. Um, and I, the other point was make it, made in, in those recommendations was also about resist, for the police to resist people flirting with them. And, and I think I, I have a former colleague from a, another paper who, whenever she got exclusives, people very unfairly, uh, this is going back, you know, 20 years or so, but very unfairly would say, oh, she must have slept with someone to get it. And, I think, you know, again, that was a complete misunderstanding of, of, of what was actually going on, but it was part of the, the rumour mill. So I, I think some, you know, a lot of it is just common sense. If, if you're involved in a very complex investigation, don't go out and drink eight pints of lager with, with a couple of um, attentive journalists. On now to some of the other topics making the news this week. And joining me to make sense of it all are The Guardian's TV editor Vicky Frost and our technology reporter Josh Halliday. First up, it was the story that had all of Twitter and large sections of the media a flutter. Yes, Rupert Murdoch's only gone and joined Twitter. It was a News Corp man's most high-profile venture into social media since he spent $580 million on MySpace. Boom. But surely this can't be quite so disastrous. Or can it? Josh, is this going to be as fascinating as it's been unexpected? It was certainly unexpected. I mean... One of the things that no one would ever predict for this year, and there were a lot of predictions for this year, was that Rupert Murdoch would actually join Twitter. Um, that he did, he was soon followed by his uh, wife, or so we thought, until uh, until Wednesday, I think it was. Um, this is the, uh, the, the Wendy Deng ding-dong. The Wendy Deng ding-dong, yes. Uh, Twitter verified it. They said it was fine for 24 hours, maybe even more. News International initially said it was fine. Uh, so we thought, here's, here's the media mogul duo on Twitter. Um, it emerged that it's actually not Wendy Deng. It's actually a British male Londoner uh, living... Uh, it's actually a British male living in London. How you can confuse that with a Chinese-born Chinese born billionaire mogul's wife is uh, not quite clear, but it's a huge, huge slip-up by Twitter. Uh, the ball's in their court now. They really need to explain how their verification process works. Um, it's not transparent at all. There's so many questions outstanding to be answered by them. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to come back from this, but it's, uh, it looks like a pretty fatal blow to just a huge cornerstone of trust on that website. Yeah, because the media really ran with it. It was, it was a big story. Rupert Murdoch would have been a big story in itself, but Wendy, Wendy Deng, as you say, uh, also. What, what are they going to do? What are they saying about their verification process? Because uh, one assumes it is uh, hugely, uh, not necessarily hugely complicated, but, uh, you know, um, copper-bottomed and that they really are sure before they put a tick next to someone's name that this is really the person who, you know, they're saying it. it is. You would think so. And everyone has, before, to, before this week, presumed so. But Twitter's always kept its cards close to its chest when it comes to verifying Twitter accounts. No one's really sure why, because there doesn't seem to be anything uh, clandestine or even that interesting about the whole process. Um, 
but Twitter is saying uh, not very much about why it mistakenly verified Wendy Deng's Twitter account. Um, it's not really answered the question of why it didn't appear to get in touch with the person who set up the account uh, before it verified the account, um, which is the huge question of uh, trust. It's Twitter's responsibility to answer at the moment. On to television now, and the first episode of the new series of BBC One Sherlock, which was called A Scandal in Belgravia, except it really should have been called A Scandal on Derry Street after the Daily Mail got extremely hot under the collar about some scenes, featuring a saucy-looking dominatrix who, shock horror, appeared to be wearing no clothes whatsoever. Not that you actually saw actor Lara Pulver entirely naked. Arms, legs and the occasional vase of flowers, I think I've got that right, meant her dignity remained entirely intact. But more than 100 viewers complained, some doubtless prompted by the male story, because it was broadcast before the watershed. Vicky, was this a BBC boob or a storm in a D cup? Oh, very good, John. Thanks. Um, I think it was perhaps slightly odd decision to put it on pre-watershed, but then, you know, it's got that Moffat audience that is perhaps sort of teenagers who I reckon can probably cope with it, and it's possibly family viewing. It would... I think they obviously didn't want to put it after nine o'clock and sort of mark it as post-watershed viewing. It was meant to be something you could watch maybe with older members of your family, Um, not like your grandparents, (laughs) but like older children in your family. You could watch it with mum and dad. And I sort of think it was probably the right side of that. I mean, 100 complaints is not really the end of the world, is it? 100 complaints after a story in the mail. It it doesn't sound to me like really people are clamouring to have it after the watershed. Yeah, 100 complaints out of 9 million viewers, I think. So, uh-huh. yes, it's uh, not a bad ratio. But uh, now, Sherlock was a hit. Uh, it wasn't entirely Christmas TV. It was kind of New Year TV, I suppose, strictly speaking. Yeah. But, uh, Vicky, I want to know from you, what were the other Christmas hits? I didn't think it was a great year for Christmas, actually, uh, Christmas TV, if I'm really honest. I found Doctor Who far too syrupy for me. I know, I'm an old witch, but um, it was it was just too ugh, icky for me, really. Absolutely Fabulous wasn't awful, but neither was it great. Um, Downton was very good. I, I enjoyed it, um, even though I did have to watch it twice and... Uh, yeah. Any particular yeah. reason for that? <laughs> well, no. Complicated plot or for review purposes? <laughs> no, because... Or was there excessive nudity? Because yeah. <laughs> I'd seen it first. And then, you know, at Christmas Day, once it gets to nine o'clock, um, if everyone else sits down to watch Downton, there's not much else you can do on your own at Christmas Day, nine o'clock, apart from watch it again with them in sort of varying degrees of drunkness. So Downton was good, but I think it was all a bit thin on the ground for me, I thought, this Christmas, really. I've got to say, thank goodness for Sky Sports, which had a, two, a two-hour cricket retrospective at nine o'clock which meant i was able to escape into the basement that sounds fun. with cheese and red wine and, and my own company so yeah great days but it was a lovely day as well apart from that with the in-laws i should say um <laughs> josh i was with uh, the 10 million brits that watched uh, that tuned in for the annual sob fest of eastenders oh. on christmas oh. Day. Yeah. it was so depressing it, was, it revolved <laughs> it. around pat brutch's bed and it was sad it was a it was a really well done episode i thought um uh, but it just was just it slightly went on too long and you were like come on you've overdone it a little bit now you, you, basically uh, all TV is too long in Halliday World that's what you're saying yeah t- TV should be in YouTube style chunks I think that's my 2012 prediction actually what is it about EastEnders and the Christmas Misery show I mean I, I, I gotta admit I did enjoy the uh, the Den and Angie divorce but you know I know I'm aging myself there and that was, uh, was about 1986 I think but um, every year 
what is it? Is it just uh, reassurance that your life isn't as bad as you thought it was after you watch Albert Square for half an hour? Or do we just like a good blub? Well, I think they've got themselves in this vicious circle now, haven't they? I mean, that's what everyone expects from soaps at Christmas is it, they're utterly ludicrously, ridiculously sad, appalling. I think I watched some of Corrie on Christmas Day and, you know, there were fires and heartbreak and... It's, and, and it's kind of like now they have to outdo each other and themselves every Christmas until one Christmas, you know, there'll just be a mass suicide in Albert Square, basically, and then nobody will be able to top it. And who knows what will happen after that. More TV now, and the shock media news of the week was nothing to do with the return of our old theme tune, but Alicia Dixon's defection from Strictly Come Dancing to Britain's Got Talent. The Desline and Rule of TV would suggest that switching from the BBC to ITV is not always the wisest move in the book. Uh, Vicky, is Alicia likely to be the exception? No, I don't think so. In lots of ways, I don't think it's a sensible move at all. Strictly has just had a brilliant, brilliant year. It's done really, really well. Uh, if we've learned anything from X Factor, it's that Cal's shows appear to be not as great as they were. Britain's Got Talent has always been sort of lagged behind X Factor in any case. And I just, I mean, you know, I, I slightly don't get it. I think it's a bit of a silly move, actually. Josh, next year's Britain's Got Talent promises a bit more than this year, which had um, Michael McIntyre and David Hasselhoff. But next year we're going to have not only Alicia, but also David Walliams. So a little bit of star power. And Simon Cowell's coming back. Simon Cowell's coming back. That's the big news, isn't it? I'm not sure anyone's particularly fussed about Alicia. Um, although she is great on Strictly, I will say that. Um, she's terrible but, on Strictly. No, she's fantastic. She she's the voice of the awful. people. She is the voice of anodyne nothingness. She's not. She has she's nothing not. to say. She always just says... I know what you did. It was really hard. That was all she ever says. That's what Britain is saying on the sofa every Saturday night. Britain so. doesn't know how hard dancing is. Farewell, Alicia, but hello, who? Well, it should be Arlene, shouldn't it? That's the obvious person. Oh, never go back. It should be. But, you know, people, people would be quite glad to see her back, I think. It's, I don't think... I mean, you know, I don't think that Strictly sort of uh, renewed success is, is really anything to do with Alicia Dixon. I think no, Josh might think differently, but carry on. Everything to do with, you know, they had a new exec producer in, they had much better casting, all of those things. And actually, Arlene was very good in that role. She was far better than Alicia was, I think. What about Greg Wallace? <laughs> well, I love that idea. <laughs> OK, we'll leave that there. And didn't we do well not giving a single mention to Celebrity Big Brother? Thank you very much to Josh Halliday and Vicky Frost. If you want to give us your feedback on anything you've just heard, head over to our blog, that's guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk, or drop over to our Facebook group. Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.